The reception of the argument in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries was almost as odd as what happened in its inventor's own lifetime or in the modern period. In this section, I am heavily indebted and deeply grateful to P. A. Daniels. In the twelfth century, the proof was simply ignored, so far as our records go. Three conclusions had been drawn from this. All accepted the proof. All rejected it. They were unacquainted with it. Daniels shows that the last is the most reasonable. In the next three centuries, things were dramatically different. Fifteen authors refer to the proof, of which the following ten accept it. William of Auxerre, Richard Fishaker, Alexander of Hales, Bonaventura, Matthew of Aquasparta, Johannes Peckham, Nicolaus of Cusa, Egidius of Rome, William of Watt, and Duns Scotus. Of these, at least four, Alexander, Bonaventura, Nicolaus, and Scotus seem to have some appreciation of Proslogium III and of the true Anselmian principle. The rest seem to think largely or exclusively of Proslogium II. Albertus Magnus, Peter of Tarentice, and Henry of Ghent take no position on the proof. Of these, only the first seems to have read past Proslogium II. St. Thomas and his disciple Richard of Middleton reject the proof. Richard cites only Proslogium II, while Thomas refers, in five different writings, sometimes to this and sometimes to the following chapter. However, where he is explicitly rejecting the proof, in the two summas, he mentions only Proslogium II, and where he does mention the other chapter, he, in my opinion, misconceives the relationship of the two. We have then fifteen medieval judges, of whom, at most, five show that they have the principle clearly and centrally in mind. One or two others exhibit some conception of it, and the rest little or none. Of the five having the principle, as Anselm did, clearly and centrally in mind, four accept the proof, and the fifth takes no stand. Of the other ten, those who seem not to grasp the centrality of Proslogium three, six accept, two reject, and two give no verdict. Thus, even where the proof was taken at its weakest, still six found it convincing, and but two rejected it. And where it was taken at its strongest, four out of five accepted and none rejected it. This seems to show the power of the proof, even when incompletely grasped, and its much greater power when fully grasped. It also shows the blighting influence of Gaunilo's inability to read beyond chapter 2. Unfortunately, the example of Thomas has in the end outweighed in prestige all the others put together. Bonaventura's cogent rebuttal of Gaunilo's island analogy has been passed over as though it has never happened, while the objections of Thomas have been treasured. Bonaventura may have been somewhat to blame for this. After grasping the true principle, he attempted to improve upon it, and, by a series of steps, reduced it to God is God, therefore he exists. Thus, as Gibson says, 
simplifying the dialectic to the vanishing point. How well did Thomas understand the proof? He seems scarcely to have seen at all how the essential step of the reasoning is back from Proslogium three to Proslogium two, rather than, as admittedly, Anselm seemed for a moment to think in the reverse order. The key to the whole proof is the connection between perfection and the unique kind of existence which is essential, necessary, or self-existence. Thomas knows this connection in his own philosophy, but he denies Anselm's right to make use of it for an ontological inference. His reasons we shall consider presently. Meanwhile, the point is that to assume that this must not be the reasoning is to beg the question. And Thomas, in effect, makes this assumption.